You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about the ongoing refugee problem around the world, the attacks by ISIS in Paris, there's an attack in Beirut, and so it seems to be coming to a head of some sort here. And then at the United States, we've seen backlash from 25 governors, all of them Republicans except for one, backlash to President Obama's call for receiving Syrian refugees. And this was witnessed by me today actually at a rally held at the Arizona State House. Our governor here, Doug Ducey, had made a statement yesterday that the state would not accept any refugees from Syria. It was interesting because originally this rally was to support two Palestinians. Their names are Hisham and Munis, who got out of Gaza. And as we all know, Gaza is a, according to Bob Simon of CBS News, the world's largest open-air prison. And so it stands the reason that some of the inmates in the prison don't want to be there. Well, these two young men escaped their trip to the United States, took them through eight different countries. They were incarcerated and kicked out of these countries. They wound up in South America and Argentina, and they worked their way north and got into Mexico and then came into Arizona and asked for asylum. And, of course, they were quickly put into uh jail. They've been in the federal prison for ICE. That's the Immigrations and Custom Enforcement Agency of Department of Homeland Securities. Now, the interesting thing, they had actually gone through the first steps in claiming humanitarian protection, which is credible fear. And so this group was planning to protest in front and urge the ICE to release these young men. And there were a community of immigration humanitarian groups in the Tucson area that were going to uh, actually aid them. But because of this recent development, the, the venue was changed to the Arizona State House and the governor's office. Governor would not talk to any of the people there. And we were interviewed on a, by a couple different TV and radio stations. And In describing where we came from, we said you have to look at the big picture because why are we getting all these refugees? It's because of our war-based economy. These serial wars that the United States has been doing for a long time, and you can go back, let's just say 1991, when we invaded Iraq for the first time and then came back again in, in 2003, we went into Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, now Syria. And so these wars create mass havoc, and we're seeing that particularly in Syria. 
so my point was we wouldn't have these problems if we hadn't been meddling in other people's affairs. And so it does seem reasonable that we have some culpability in this because of our actions that we should be doing something in the way of humanitarian actions. But the issue of the immigration and these refugees is getting to be becoming a flashpoint here in the United States. You've got people on both sides and now it's kind of coming to head with these governors saying, oh, we don't want them here. And of course, this is a federal issue, uh, a federal matter. And so we don't know exactly where this is going, but it does cause division. And so that was my point is that the real problem is what the United States has done around the world. And one of the examples I gave in one of the interviews was a story about a Guatemalan woman who was here uh, in Arizona illegally, was reported in the Arizona Republic. This was three or four years ago. She was here illegally. She had three children, and she had brought two of the children in. And the story was about the youngest child, who was 13, that was being brought up from Guatemala with a, a former neighbor down there. Well, they got into Mexico, and then they went in through Arizona using what they call coyotes to bring them up further in Arizona. Well, the short side of the story is the coyote calls up the woman and says the son and the neighbor are missing. So they've died somewhere in the desert, and uh, this happens all the time. And maybe this woman would not have needed to come to the United States if, in 1954, the United States government, through our CIA, overthrew the democratically elected a leader of Guatemala, his name was Arbenz, in 1954, and put in one of our puppets. These things have long-term effects. And so what we create, we did the same thing in Iran in 1953. We overthrew Mossadegh, who was a democratically elected leader, put the Shah in. We've seen what happened uh, with the revolution in 1979 in Iran. And so we've created all these blowback situations that are now manifesting themselves in crisis, particularly in Europe with refugees and now with another attack in Paris with over 140 dead by some terrorist, presumably ISIL. And so we've got the consequences of our war-based economy are coming home to roost, you might say. Glenn here, I, I kind of think we have a lot of these consequences are not just accidental, but they're planned consequences. And, uh, you know, there might be a lot of times we think we bring someone in, but there might be uh, ulterior motives to actually drive more consternation and, and, and to create these regime problems. It could actually be a planned event. That's very good, Glenn, because that's kind of where I'm going. The current situation we're seeing is there are suddenly about five players all in a place called Syria that none of us ever have ever been to and that we didn't think was very important. Uh, we have the USA in Syria. We have Russia in Syria. Uh, we have the UK flirting with it and uh, sticking their nose in here and there. And uh, just this week, France bombed 
what was thought to be a big ISIL installation in Syria. And, um, of course, the role of two players in the, in the immediate neighborhood that we talked about a lot, Israel and Saudi Arabia, is uncertain. Both of them are pretending to be uninvolved. They're uh, amazingly quiet, hiding out and uh, saying very little about it and letting all the big powers participate. What the actions in Syria seem to indicate to me is more and more clearly that the USA's role has not been to hurt or to destroy ISIL or ISIS or Daesh, as it's called in Syria, but rather to make sure that it keeps on going. And the big evidence of this came about just this week. Russia, of course, moved into, into the, the area with fighter bombers and started bombing what they said was all the resistance points uh, that they could find uh, against the government, which they considered the legal government, the Assad government. The U.S. immediately complained, and then we suddenly had U.S. Special Forces people supposedly trainers without guns, and uh, what, have, what have they done with them? But they brought them in and assigned them as advisors. And the indication there is that uh, they are being used as human shields. Uh, this has been stated by a number of people, that they're being used as human shields to protect ISIL. In other words, you've got to be very careful for the Russians not to bomb American uh, bodies or strategically assigned. And uh, now suddenly we have France that's come in with 10 fighter bombers. And France was mad, and they went right to the point. They went to an oil refinery in northwestern Syria that uh, I had not really believed could have possibly been producing petroleum. I just didn't believe it. I wrote that that this was impossible. Anybody can stop a refinery uh, with a drone or with a missile or with something. It burns. It turns out that what comes out in the, in all of this is that the U.S. has been making excuses why they couldn't stop ISIL from running this refinery and selling oil and gasoline and diesel fuel across the border in Iraq. And uh, this all came to view when the French went in with 10 fighter bombers and destroyed 100 and I think it was 116 tanker trucks that were parked at this refinery trying to load up and drive off full of fuel. So now the obvious question is, why didn't the U.S. destroy the tanker trucks? How come we said that we were there to fight ISIL, but we let them have 116 tanker trucks parked there to haul away fuel that they're using to fund their operations? More and more of the things we're seeing here make it look like the U.S. has been coddling and defending ISIL to make sure that nobody does destroy it. And uh, now we have evidence that both Russia and France think that they should put on the brass knuckles and do something about ISIL. So as this develops, we get more and more of the picture that the U.S. has somehow, through, of course, through somebody way above Obama, because I wouldn't even think Obama would know about this, but uh, somehow they have been playing the game of building ISIL. And uh, this goes back to what we said from the very start, all you have to do if you want to stop ISIL is find out who's funding it. And if you find out who's funding it and cut off the funding, then you should be able to stop ISIL. Uh, if it's petroleum, you just prevent them from selling the petroleum. Either you bomb the trucks that haul it or you bomb the pipeline. 
If they want to carry it out in five-gallon drums, well, let them. But uh, they're not going to fund ISIL that way. So this really points to U.S. complicity as we see more and more that we just didn't do anything in Syria, even to inhibit ISIL. And uh, now we see that Israel has a recent treaty with Saudi Arabia. They don't even have diplomatic relations, but they have a treaty between them, sort of a mutual defense thing. And uh, then the other thing we're seeing is the involvement of Egypt. Egypt Mm -hmm. has been defending Israel from immigration coming in from places like Sudan that we destroyed and caused the immigration. So when you look at the whole picture, and we're writing a story about this, updating our story about is ISIL a risk to American security, and in that we're going to point out these things that indications become more and more clear, a danger of repeating that the U.S. is indirectly funding or at least allowing ISIL to be funded at the very least, and that uh, our best allies who are so quiet in this matter, of course, because they're right under the gun there, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, seem to be more directly involved. Saudi Arabia, of course, is the largest purchaser of the United States war machines. They buy $60 billion worth in a good year. Where does this stuff go? They park it on the desert and never use it, except in scrimmages with their neighbor. I just heard on the news today that Saudi Arabia is the uh, third largest military budget in the world. So oh, wow. Number on the way up there. It was on, it was on uh, Fox News today. By far the biggest buyer of U.S. military equipment. Chuck, I really appreciate your uh, intro to the Galad Otsman article because okay. that's the bottom line. You follow the money here. Where is ISIS getting its funding? Because if you dry that up, they go back to the desert, wherever snake hole they came out of. As long as they've got the new Toyota trucks and all this other stuff going along, are they so effective in their military prowess that they just go in and steal and win over all the material of war from the rebels that we're supporting. I just smell a rat in, in all of this. And so we can just follow the money so that, uh, is, it, is it Saudi Arabia? Is it Turkey? Is it Israel? Is it the United States? Where is this? Where is this? Is it Russia? You know, where is this stuff coming from? Yeah, the, the most suspicious part about it is that no one ever talks about the money. Think back on right. all the broadcasts you've heard since you first heard of ISIL. And how many, or have you, have you even heard one where the announcer said, now we're going to sit down and get to the bottom of this and find out who's funding these people? Have you ever heard anybody say that? No. Uh-uh. Not once, except us. And a few people we read. And we think it's so clear that, uh, that there's no other, you know, no, no other place to look. Why look any further? The very fact that you can't get anybody in Washington to ever, ever talk about the funding is a clear sign that they refuse to talk about it. And this idea of funding themselves by capturing oil wells and pumping the oil and then selling it in the black market is just plain ridiculous. They can only do that if they're allowed to do it. It's so interesting that ISIS or ISIL or Daesh or anybody hasn't attacked Israel, their arch enemy. (laughs) Israel's defense system is so good that ISIS can't sneak in through any kind of checkpoint or anything like that. We had the same thing happen during the Iraqi war, the first one, the George Bush Sr. war. Uh, Israel was pounding the table for war, and they were in Congress, actually talking to the Congress about it. And Netanyahu was the prime minister again at that time. 
he, he had some time off, but he came back in after a couple of terms. And he was he was in Washington then, feeding the table for war. And then the second we started the war, Israel became totally silent. They never launched a rocket. They didn't complain when a few fell in their soil. They acted like good little boys and just sat there and watched as as the U.S. started the war. Well, that's what it's all about, ladies and gentlemen. This is a war-based economy, and we're seeing these effects. that They seem to be coming more rapidly here, and we can expect more kinds of disastrous things like what we saw in Paris and Beirut, the blowback that we're getting from these enemies that we've, in essence, helped to create. And so the solution is simple. We need to bring our troops home and stop being the world's policeman and only empire in the world. We've actually replaced the British Empire with a new paradigm, if you will, with over 700 military bases around the world, actually. And we're seeing some of the effects of this militarism is becoming more and more obvious every day. Thanks for listening. We hope we've got you thinking about the issue. As we've said in the past, go to different sources to uh, check this out and verify that, yes, hey, maybe we really are a military-based economy, and maybe what we're doing around the world is causing a lot of these problems that we're seeing that have become manifest more and more. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.